Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. In the early 1990s, University of Chicago economist Sam Peltzman observed that scores on college admissions exams had declined steadily for about 30 years. He hypothesized that it was more than immense cultural shifts precipitating the decline. There were particular political conditions in some states, but not others, that led to what he called the decline of the public schools. More than 25 years later, we as a country are still a bit confused about our education system. What is it for? What are its goals? And how can we prepare students to succeed in today's economy, if that's even the most important outcome? To discuss Sam Peltzman's 1993 Bradley Lecture on the decline of the public schools, we brought in AEI's Director of Education Policy Studies, Rick Hess, whose research focuses on traditional and some unorthodox ways to prepare students for the world beyond school in every sense. Before we get the conversation started, I want to encourage all our listeners to follow us on Twitter at Bradley Lectures for more stimulating content, to like our podcast, subscribe, and leave a comment wherever you may be listening. With that, here's my conversation with Rick Hess, followed by Sam Peltzman's 1993 lecture, Why the Public Schools Have Declined. We've got Rick Hess here in studio, AEI education guru, longtime director of the uh, education policy team here at AEI. Yeah, longer than I'd like to remember, man. I, the the uh, website makes it sound like you've been here for almost 20 years. That's, you know what? That's true. Well, then you've, you've seen a lot <laughs> in terms of trends in education policy and perhaps even in terms of student achievement since you began here, certainly since... Sam Peltzman's 1993 lecture, Why the Public Schools Have Declined. So the first thing I want to ask about is where the reformers have landed. It seems to be that conservatives, Republicans, plenty of Democrats and liberals as well, although perhaps not Bernie Sanders, uh, (laughs) have landed on school choice really is the big answer. Uh, Peltzman, as you'll hear in a few minutes, will mention that at some length, not, not great length, but as a possible solution, but it seems to be the major focus of reformers now, or at least conservative reformers now. Is is that right? Have we just landed on that? And is that the, the way to go? So it's a great question. I mean, what I always say is that when you're in the middle of any of this, it feels like this is what reform, school reform is, this is what reformers are for. Reality is we've been reforming American education since at least the 1830s. And what happens is these reform waves tend to last 10, 20 years. Uh, People eventually get frustrated and disappointed. And out of the uh, crashing of the old wave, you see born a new wave. And so one way to think about what's happened here. uh, So Peltzman spoke at AEI AEI in 93. Um, That was really there was a, a wave of reform that really lasted from, say, the early 80s through the late 90s. Uh, that was born of the Nation at Risk a report issued by the Reagan administration. And Nation at Risk was this idea of, my gosh, our schools are doing apocalyptically bad. We have to do something different. And you saw Southern governors, folks like Bill Clinton, uh, Lamar Alexander, uh, tackling a variety of reform strategies. They were tightening high school requirements. They were trying career ladders for teachers. They were trying to do minimum competency testing for teachers. And this was actually the way we tended to talk about reform Um, testing, accountability, high school credits uh, through the 80s and much of the 90s, people grew frustrated with that, that that wasn't moving us fast enough, far enough. 
And so what we've seen in the last 20 years, really um, born of, say, the Bush administration, 2000, was an emphasis particularly on testing and accountability and school choice. And what's happened over the last 10, 15 years, support for testing and accountability has largely burned off uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, And now what's happened is school choice has become the read that the right tends to stand on single-mindedly, having sworn off the No Child Left Behind stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you've actually seen a huge split in the left on school choice. What used to be solid support on the school reform left uh, for charter schooling uh, has largely unraveled. Um, You now see most white Democrats are hostile to charter schools, but you see majority support among uh, black and Latino Democrats for charter schools. So if you are running as a mainstream progressive appealing to college-educated whites, that doesn't get you a lot of traction on the left. Uh, On the right, school choice is what we talk about. But um, outside of the red states, you don't really necessarily have a lot of traction in the purples or certainly the blues. So what we have seen is charter schooling really taking, um, you know, really getting pushback in places like California and New York and to a certain extent um, in some of the purple states. Charter schooling and school choice more broadly are frequently justified on moral terms or in terms of opportunity, that it's, it's part of an opportunity agenda. Whereas Peltzman likes to focus on the metric of college preparedness, specifically standardized test scores, which he sees declining. That's his metric for uh, talking about the decline of public schools. Is there something we should be looking at beyond the scores themselves, beyond so-called college preparedness that will indicate some kind of success with public education? Yeah, sure there is. Uh, I mean, one limitation, so Peltzman was speaking in 93. We just didn't have good testing data um, in 1993. Uh, In fact, a West Virginia psychiatrist famously wrote a book about 1990 in which he pointed out that uh, median test scores were above average in every state in the union because we were using these norm-based tests, which were subject. Um, And so Peltzman was forced to look at SAT scores, but SAT scores are notoriously horrific for making these kinds of estimates, partly because they're hugely affected by who takes them and where they take them. Um, Look, why do we have schools in a republic is one way to think about it. Mm -hmm. One reason we have schools is because we believe, especially in the modern economy, education is crucial to giving individuals an opportunity to live their best lives. So that's, that's a given. Reality is, turns out when you look at parents, uh, whether either when you survey them or when you look at revealed preferences, test scores tend to be eighth to tenth among the items that parents look at when choosing a school for their child. So test scores matter because they tell us something about whether people can really do math, but families are looking at other things like school safety, school culture. And if we think about the American Republic, you go back to Ben Rush or Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, the logic there for for systems of public education was not because it was necessary for individual economic um, success, but because it was about creating citizens. It was about creating an appreciation for the blessings that we share. It was about the responsibilities that we must carry as citizens. Um, And so I think, you know, any vision of school improvement which doesn't understand that is simply going to miss the mark um, in terms of public purpose and in terms of what citizens are looking for. Peltzman points extensively to the role of business and the demand local or national businesses create in shaping the goals of our education system. 
Have we gotten any closer to tailoring education to the needs of a dynamic economy? Is that even what we ought to aim for? You know, it's funny because, you know, we've got 50 million kids in school in this country, in public school in this country. And so one of the realities is we always seem to be moving in multiple directions at once. So, you know, the last decade, we had, there's been a resurgent push for career and technical education, which had largely fallen out of fashion. Uh, at the same time, there's a huge push on paying more attention to social and emotional learning. At the same time, this has been the decade of the Common Core, which has pushed to ensure that all children are enrolling in quote-unquote college-ready reading and math, um, meeting college-ready reading and math standards. Uh, can, you hype, can, can you theoretically reconcile these things? Sure. In practice, are these similar things? No. These things push in opposite directions. And so the reality is, um, depending on which business person you talk to on which day of the week, in my experience, they could tell you they want any of these things. They'll tell you that they really need people who are collaborative and can do teamwork and have social-emotional skills to regulate themselves. Or they will tell you they need people who actually have um, you know, the kinds of career and technical education that they don't necessarily need all college grads and people can do these jobs. Or they'll tell you they need people who have world-class training and uh, deciphering text and doing math. You know, so <laughs> I think the reality is um, that the business community, depending on what parts of the business community, uh, what day of the week it is, are looking for different things. Uh, the different schools and different places are trying to do different things, sometimes all at once. Um, and that the way these usually get played through by reformers and by policymakers is by saying, yeah, we got to do all of that, mm -hmm. um, which is part of why so many people get so frustrated. Rick Hess with some very thought-provoking answers. And with that, we'll proceed to Sam Peltzman's 1993 lecture, Why Public Schools Have Declined. Rick and I will be back in just a few minutes. I'd like to begin my talk tonight by, by imagining that we have uh, taken a trip back through time. Imagine that we have come from a typical uh, American classroom of today to a classroom of a generation ago. Uh, to some of us here of a, of a certain age, there'll be a certain nostalgia connected with this trip. If you take this imaginary trip, uh, and we're back in a, an old classroom of around 1960, we, we notice many things are different from the classroom that we, that we just left. Perhaps the most obvious thing is there are many more students. Uh, if it's a typical classroom uh, of that era, 40% uh, more than uh, the classroom that we have just left. We look around in vain for a teaching assistant. We look around uh, in, in vain for uh, a lot of equipment. Think, think of audiovisual equipment. What, what, what do we see? We see maybe the scratchy old record player in the, in the corner, probably shared with a few other classes. Books and art materials, uh, they're much fewer than uh, the, the classroom we've come from, and they're doled out more sparingly. The place we're in has an altogether more forbidding austerity about it than the more intimate and friendly place which we have left. And austerity is the appropriate word. The classroom that we're in is getting by with about a third the real dollar expenditures of today's classroom. There is, of course, another fact about this classroom that comes as a considerable embarrassment to, the, to we, the voyagers from this generation. This classroom seems to be turning out better educated students than today's, uh, at least in terms of basic knowledge, in terms of literacy and numeracy. 
Today's average high school graduate seems to be no match for his counterpart of a generation ago. Uh, while you can quibble with the details, the broad facts today are, are beyond uh, any serious dispute. Uh, average performance of students has declined, uh, and it's declined noticeably. The most widely cited statistic, of course, the one which I, I would imagine many people in this room are familiar with, is the uh, decline in SAT scores, which receives wide publicity. Now, now there's some dispute about whether these uh, the SAT scores exaggerate a little bit or understate a little bit, but they do convey the essential point. The, the, uh, in today's crop of college freshmen, only a third are doing better than the average freshman of a generation ago. Now, in an, in an important respect, all of this is old news. At least it can be said that over the last 10 or 15 years, things have not gotten worse, and in some respects, they've gotten better. But on the whole, as a broad generalization, America's schools today are performing roughly at the level they were in around 1980. The intriguing question with which I'm going to be concerned today is what happened in the half generation prior to 1980 to bring us to where essentially we are today? And uh, within the limits of time, I want to discuss what is likely to happen uh, in the years ahead. The record of this period that I'm going to be focusing on, which runs from about 1965 uh, to 1980, is truly amazing. Real expenditures per student doubled over this period. Pupil-teacher ratios declined uh, by a fourth. In both respects, these are historically unprecedented growth rates of inputs. And of course, student achievement deteriorated and deteriorated badly by, uh, by every available measure. Now, for an ordinary business to double its inputs, yet somehow manage to produce less is unthinkable. But that is what happened to American education in this oh, roughly 15-year period leading up to 1980. Now, uh, I, I wish I could tell you why this swift change occurred. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot. This is not the place to review the attempts of social scientists to uncover the source of this uh, deterioration. Suffice it to say that to this day, they've been largely unsuccessful. The difficulty is that the decline was so sudden, so sharp, and so pervasive, it affected every region and every socioeconomic group, for example, that it really constitutes a singular event. Virtually nothing that distinguishes the 1960s and the 1970s from other decades can, can really be ruled out as a cause of this decline. And on the other hand, the suddenness of the decline, you can really date it within a year or two of 1965. It's almost that precise. That suddenness rules out uh, the operation uh, or the, the important uh, uh, contribution of any long-run trend that was well underway by 1960. Uh, uh, my focus here is going to be less ambitious uh, than trying to give you a single answer to this, uh, this very important uh, question of what went wrong. Rather, I want to shed light on one 
aspect of the problem, but one that is often uh, neglected. And this is the political context within which American schools operate. We really shouldn't lose sight of an important fact about American elementary and secondary education. And it's a fact that I think bears telling to an audience uh, in the District of Columbia in particular. Uh, American uh, education, uh, public, uh, uh, American elementary and secondary education is overwhelmingly a public enterprise. The public sector accounts for uh, around nine out of every ten students uh, and an even larger share of the expenditures. Uh, indeed, if you take it as a whole, it's probably our largest public enterprise. In, in, in terms of employment, it would comfortably exceed the size of the defense establishment, which I suppose would be the candidate for runner-up. Now, because American schools are funded publicly, administered uh, by public employees, uh, uh, they're, they're inevitably going to be subject to the pulling and tugging of political forces. And I, I, I want to, uh, to argue, uh, on the basis of some of the research that I've done, that the way these political forces have evolved has contributed to some degree to the way schools have performed. I don't want to overstate this point. I'm not arguing that everything we need to know uh, uh, about America's schools is the result of political forces. I am arguing that they play some and some role and a not insignificant role. Now, this should hardly be a radical suggestion. If, for example, I came here to talk about uh, the, the, the performance of the defense, the, the defense department rather than the public schools, and I wished to argue that the way the defense establishment operates rests entirely on the play of domestic politics, that would be an exaggeration. But if I told you that domestic politics never nurtured an obsolete weapon system past its uh, time, you would be correctly skeptical. It is, at least to me, uh, striking that the role of politics is almost completely ignored in the large body of social science research on student achievement. Uh, but it is a fact. It is largely ignored. Uh, my own research, of course, has not ignored the link between politics and the way schools perform, and I want to share with you some of the results uh, today. What I have done in this research is I've, uh, I've taken advantage of the decentralized organization of American uh, public schools. Public education is almost entirely a state and local concern in this country. We have 50 different uh, state departments of education making policy, thousands of uh, local school boards with some uh, degree of, of autonomy. Uh, and whatever the political forces that are operating on education, and I will be more specific about what I think the important ones are in a minute, they are inevitably local politics in this sense. And that means they inevitably will differ in their weight and in their timing from place to place. I can also report that there's a substantial local variety in the way that school systems seem to perform, uh, at least as measured by the way their students, uh, what their students achieve. I was fortunately uh, able in the course of doing this research to be able to piece together state-by-state -state data on trends for one large group of students, uh, namely high school students who are uh, going on to college and therefore typically they're taking a college entrance exam uh, either the 
the SAT, which I mentioned before, or the ACT. These are the two major college entrance exams, which uh, between them uh, test uh, roughly two million students a year. Uh, and I was able, of, uh, with the cooperation of the, uh, both the SAT and the ACT people, to piece together state-by-state -state trends in, 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 in uh, scores. And uh, if you look at the pre-1980 period and you put everything in terms of SAT scores, just because that's somewhat more familiar, in the average state, SAT scores were declining by five points a year. That is, we have a test which uh, the average score today in the nation is about uh, 900. It was in the upper 900s uh, when this decline started, and over a 15-year period was going down by about five points a year. No state avoided completely this decline, not, not a single one. But declines half as large or half again as large were not uncommon. So there's a large, uh, uh, there's obviously, uh, uh, some school systems are doing a better job in avoiding the, these, uh, uh, these uh, whatever these forces are than others. Uh, the advantage of all this local variety from a research perspective is that it allows uh, one to ask what kinds of political environment seemed to be uh, conducive to relatively more successful performance. Since there is a lot of variety, you can look at these states which are relatively more successful and ask what kind of political environment seems to, to characterize them. Back here in studio with Rick Hess. Now, Rick, I wanted to ask you, because this is such an important part of Peltzman's uh, shaping of the issue, I wanted to ask about the political context in which we see improvements in educational achievement or uh, other measures of of prowess. Now, I know you've done some some research yourself on state and local policies that tend to be conducive towards achievement or can lead to political wheel spinning at, without all that much uh, achievement. So certainly a lot of time has passed since 1993. What has your research shown? Uh, well, it's just sort of the big picture. We saw, we saw some real student improvement in the 90s. It's hard to know what, that, what, what to trace that to. Um, a lot of this obviously is student achievement tends to go up or down on the, uh, you know, on the wings of movements of general economic circumstances. When families are intact, when the economy is doing well, performance tends to go up. Um, in the last 20 years, say since 2000, the National Assessment of Educational Progress suggests we've made some progress in math, no, no general uh, progress in reading. And if you look at the international assessments, uh, U.S. performance is absolutely flat. We've moved not a whit in the last 20 years. Um, now, that said, we have moved in some places, as you, as you point out. Uh, so Massachusetts is probably the most famous success story. In fact, back in 1993, Massachusetts passed its uh, landmark Education Reform Act. It was a bipartisan act. Uh, it was uh, supported by heavily Democratic legislature and a series of Republican governors. And over a period of time, Massachusetts went from middle of the pack uh, to the highest performing state on a number of indicators, most famously the National Assessment of Educational Progress. What did it do? Um, it put in place a relatively uh, strong regime of accountability around uh, student performance on tests. Uh, it involved uh, some modest uh, introduction of school choice. Uh, it made some effort to improve the quality of teachers. And... Uh, you know, generally speaking, what it kicked off was about a 20-year uh, span 
uh, of intense and serious involvement in Massachusetts school reform uh, by both uh, the business and the civic community. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that in a lot of places. We've seen uh, Florida under uh, Governor Jeb Bush uh, launch a massive uh, number of reforms, including really expansive choice reform, and have seen positive results. Uh, we've seen Arizona probably become the nation's leader in charter schooling, um, and we've actually seen some um, pretty substantial results out of that. But if you actually try to pick and choose across the states for you know, a number of states that have made dramatic and sustained improvement, you probably have trouble finding more than about a half dozen over the past quarter century. Wow. That's, that's a lot of wheel spinning, it's, it sounds like. <laughs> well said. Well, I, I uh, wanted to ask about a few other things. This is your opportunity for some, some hot takes uh, because there are <laughs> several uh, education policy-related news stories out there between uh, Elizabeth Warren's debt elimination <laughs> proposal, various free college proposals from Democratic presidential candidates and beyond, and then still related to the issue of student debt, uh, the billionaire Robert F. Smith announcing at the uh, Morehouse College graduation that he'd forgive all of the 2019 graduate student debt. Uh, what do you make of all of this beyond uh, – I mean obviously those are those are some different categories of uh, proposals or behavior. But what do you, what do you make of the uh, student debt craze and uh, various proposals to rectify it? You know, for, for me, uh, the root problem here is that colleges, I think for many people, feel like they're running an extortion racket. That college is a great thing if you want to get a college education. And college is a great thing if you want the skills or training that some colleges can deliver because they will let you do rewarding work. I think for a lot of people, as uh, our colleague Andrew Kelly used to say, if you want to work at Enterprise Rental Car, you need a college degree. Not because you need a college degree to do the job, but because you can only get hired if you do it. What's happened is employers have outsourced to colleges uh, the screening and selection of employees. And so going through college is not for huge numbers of students actually about obtaining valuable skills or knowledge. It is about paying a really hefty admission fee. So you can get a piece of paper which will allow you to apply for a job. This means people are spending lots of money, mostly most of it borrowed, in order to get permission to work. When, when you have been essentially uh, commandeered into taking out fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, which is about the average student debt, uh, what happens is you are both resentful and wondering, why the heck did I have to do this, which I didn't enjoy? Now, part of the problem here is not so much... Uh, a, a huge part of the problem is that back in the Civil Rights Act of 64, um, Congress wrote, uh, wrote into the legislation that employers uh, could not engage in um, discriminatory hiring practices. In the early 70s, in Griggs versus Duke Power, the Supreme Court interpreted this to say, hey, you can't do things like IQ tests or hiring tests unless you can prove they work. Um, Interestingly, in the majority opinion, Chief Justice Rehnquist said, well, we don't talk about college diplomas here, but let's not give diplomas a free ride. Unfortunately, what's happened is we've given diplomas a free ride. So if you want to require a 110 IQ uh, as an employer in order to not get your butt sued, you need to be able to demonstrate in a court of law that a 109 IQ is insufficient for the job requirements, which is why the lawyers and corporate HR departments are like, no, you can't do this. 
On the other hand, if you want to randomly say, yeah, you need a college degree to apply for this job, you are safe as the day is long. So what's happened, I think, is we've created this huge pressure on folks to go to college, particularly to chase four-year degrees. Many of them are not, many of them don't complete. And now that has trickled down into larger questions about burdensome debt, about people feeling frustrated with kind of what's going on. And uh, on the left, the general response is, we're, you know, Elizabeth Warren's plan, kind of free college plans, is to say, well, it's okay that you are coerced into attending college, but we're going to make taxpayers pay for it. And on the right, unfortunately, we have had little or no response Um other than cheering the occasional billionaire who's writing checks. Now, if you're going to write checks to a graduating class of HBCUs, I don't know, but I got to guess that the graduating class at Morehouse of all the nation's HBCUs is probably the least in need of having its loans kind of, you know, simply forgiven because folks from Morehouse um, statistically tend to do quite well in the workforce. There's other places, but those other places probably aren't going to land uh, speakers of that kind of cachet or those kinds of bucks. So you wind up with colleges trading on their prestige to get rich people in the door. Those rich people write checks. And we wind up with some of the uh, the dynamics that so frustrate Americans who aren't, you know, part of the inner circle. Is there room for big business like big tech to sort of break ranks and uh, issue credentials on their own that might be valuable uh, indications of students' skills and, and potential contributions? Absolutely. And this, is, so, and this is actually where those of us who believe uh, both in opportunity and in markets really ought to be being like, what the heck are we been talking about? Sure. Um, and in fact, we've seen some companies doing this. For instance, Starbucks uh, came to its senses last year and said, you know what? Maybe to be barista, you don't need a college degree. So we've seen some companies like this actually starting to take a look and say, wait a minute, why have we engaged in this credential inflation? It drives up our costs. It means we're hiring people who feel underpaid given their, given their education backgrounds, and they're more likely to leave. So, what do we, so one, there's a huge opportunity for businesses to take a look and say, wait a minute, why are we requiring the credentials we're requiring? Second part of it is for businesses to absolutely get involved in the business, what we often call these micro-credentials or badges in the education space, where instead of having to go get a four-year degree in order to demonstrate that you're able to work the counter at a rental car, operation. Maybe there is a one-week training which can de- which you can demonstrate uh, the personal characteristics, the dispositions, and the requisite skills so that somebody for 1500 bucks can certify that you're able to do this job. That's a possible one. You can either imagine employers doing this, partnering with folks to do this, supporting it. There's also this question, you know, there's a number of conservative and libertarian uh, political leaders who have gotten gotten the uh, the idea as to why it's so crazy to require, you know, how licensure has gone out of whack to what makes sense in terms of people who want to be horse masseuses or hair braiders that requiring 300 hours of supervised cost to be a florist. To be a florist. And yet, you know, this is the exact same argument, but we've had, but we've tended not to hear it made, right? We either tend to attack colleges or to talk about how do we subsidize colleges. And maybe the argument is that colleges are wonderful. Post-secondary education is wonderful when they are places that you can pursue your passion or build your skills, but that it is crazy for the U.S. government or for our institutional arrangements to be coercing people into borrowing money from taxpayers to chase credentials they don't want that there's little evidence they necessarily need. Part of this, of course, all stems from the notion that college is necessary to be launched into the middle class. 
which might explain or at least help explain why the College Board recently announced that it would calculate a uh, a so-called adversity score uh, for students from underprivileged backgrounds to likely get a, a leg up in the college admissions. Rick Hess, for or against the adversity score? Against. I'm shocked. You know, but it's a little, but, but you hate saying that, and I don't. I mean, look, do I think that getting a thirteen hundred on the SAT in a school where you've got good teachers, uh, in a community where it's safe to walk to school every day, is as impressive an accomplishment as getting a thirteen hundred on the SAT in a school where you've got terrible teachers, where there's fights every day at lunch, and where you have to actually worry about your safety getting? No, I I understand. That a 1300 in one environment is more is a more impressive trait than in another environment. I get that. On the other hand, I do, you know, it, it is also the case that being able to throw a baseball 90 miles an hour is more impressive when you're in one environment than if you're in an environment where you've played Little League four hours a day in the baseball. But we understand that when you get to college, it's actually what you're able to know and do that matters. And especially that's true when you get past college. Moreover, colleges already tell us ad nauseum how good they are at trying to take into account personal circumstances. The idea that we need uh, a body with the institutional might of the college board going around uh, creating uh, an index which supposedly based on a, you know, on, on, on a matrix of uh, community measures is able to say in any meaningful way uh, the difficulties an individual has overcome, how impressive their accomplishments are, I think takes us into a place that just should be really disconcerting. I uh, appreciated the uh, the sports analogy as a five foot seven Jewish man with an eighty two mile per hour fastball who uh, remarkably did not get a college baseball scholarship offer. And, and I got to tell you, right, if we had an appro- if we had appropriate correctives for that eighty two, it's in 92 if you're six foot three. With a sharp slider, as we all know. Rick so that's Hess, what I'm talking about. Rick Hess, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful conversation. We look forward to having you on in the future. Hey, good to be with you. That's it for me and Rick. Here's the rest of Sam Peltzman's lecture, Why the Public Schools Have Declined. And Let me illustrate the answer uh, uh, that I came up with with one important case, uh, the rise of teacher unionization. Now, this began, interestingly enough, just about the time that student performance nationally begins to decline. Before 1960, it seems uh, uh, almost uh, uh, prehistory to think about it, but before 1960, there was essentially no teacher unionization. Then in the 1960s, there was very rapid growth. By the end of that decade, over half the teachers in the country were unionized, and today about three-fourths uh, belong to one or the other of the two major uh, uh, national teachers' unions. Uh, this was all, this this rapid early growth, which got o- over half of the teachers unionized within in less than ten years, was also accompanied by pressure on state legislatures to grant unions new rights. These days, it's an annual right of fall that you have teacher strikes. It's again perhaps prehistoric, but 
not in 1960. Public employees generally didn't have the right to strike in 1960. And there was a lot of political pressure exerted on state legislatures to give public employees, including teachers, the right to strike. Uh, the important point here is that the success of all these efforts was very uneven. The, uh, the initial success of, of the teacher uh, unions was in uh, New York City and New York State. Uh, that success then spread first to a few urban centers and the states which contained them, and then spread beyond those places. Even to this day, there are a few states in which teacher unionization is essentially non-existent. And, and one can ask then, what happened to student achievement in those places where the push for teacher organization was most successful most quickly? Uh, what happened in those states where the legislatures were most receptive to union pressures for, uh, for things like the right to strike? Now, the broad answer to this uh, question, and, and that's all really I have time for uh, today, the broad answer to this question is that student achievement tended to do worse, that is to deteriorate worse than average in those areas where the success of uh, these union efforts was most pronounced most early. Now, let me say I do not find this terribly surprising. And it's not because I believe the teacher unions are indifferent or hostile to student uh, achievement. In fact, uh, perhaps the opposite is more nearly true. I, I should mention that the, uh, the, the head of the pioneer teachers union, uh, Albert Shanker of the American Federation of Teachers, has emerged as a very powerful voice for improving uh, 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 the academic performance of students uh, uh, in, in recent years. However, uh, whatever, whatever the, 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 the wish, unions also have other concerns. They have traditional concerns for job security, for promotion and pay differential rules, and the like. And here, uh, as in life generally, there are trade-offs. Inevitably, there are going to be trade-offs. That is, you can't always have union-style job security and a very flexible ability to replace underperforming teachers uh, coexisting. Uh, let me discuss another powerful trend that was operating on the political environment of schools uh, when their performance deteriorated. And that has the, the, the locus of political control changed. Political control became considerably more centralized. Now, this this tendency actually goes back a long ways. It begins really right after World War II with a movement to consolidate local school districts. The end of World War II, at, at the end of World War II, we had 100,000 school districts in the United States. By 1970, when the, the consolidation movement was at an end, uh, we had only 20,000, uh, which is what we have roughly today a little bit under 20,000. About 15 years after this movement began, uh, again, around 1960, interestingly enough, a move toward financial centralization began. Until then, uh, local school boards raised the bulk of their own funds. About 60% of uh, uh, funds for the public schools was raised at the local level typically by, uh, uh, by school board, uh, by real estate taxes that went to the local school board. The bulk of the rest uh, uh, was provided by state governments. 
by 1980, the state government had become the senior financial partner. And local school boards uh, raised uh, only around 40% of their own funds. Again, roughly where they are today. Uh, so in that 20-year period, there was a substantial shift of financial responsibility away from the uh, local school board toward the state. That, of course, uh, 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 is intimately involved with the, uh, although uh, is, intim is intimately connected in one's mind with the Serrano decision in California. However, the move was really well, well underway before then. Now, one can debate uh, at length the potential advantages and disadvantages of this centralization. And I'm not going to do that here. As Chris said, I, I like to lean on the facts. And the facts are that this financial centralization is not associated with improved school performance. Quite the contrary. Uh, those states which moved earliest and most extensively to, uh, to replace local financing with state financing tended to have other things the same, sharper deterioration in school performance. These facts are consistent with a view that, uh, that's recently been articulated by John Chubb and Terry Moe in their book, Politics, Markets, and American Schools. The, their view is that school performance is inhibited by the layering of bureaucratic controls over them, which are uh, remote from and less responsive to uh, the parents. Uh, in some sense, uh, my result is in that spirit because uh, 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 financial responsibility moved further away from the local school boards to a, um, a more remote kind of bureaucracy, the State Department of Education. And it shows up. It actually it shows up in, in, in school performance in the sense the, in which I've uh, uh, just uh, uh, alluded to. Let me come to a third important change in the political environment of education uh, that came to a head just as school performance began to decline, and this is the push for desegregation. Again, we're going back now to a, uh, a period that's receding into uh, history, but uh, uh, the push for desegregation historically is coincident with the decline of school performance. Uh, it, you can date it to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And indeed, at the time that these pressures arose, the potential effects on school performance was the subject of much lively debate. There was a fear that the disruption uh, caused by uh, the, the need to deal with, the pro with this uh, problem would, would compromise school performance. And again, I prefer, instead of uh, going over old debates, to look at the facts rather than conjecture. And they're reasonably clear, I think. Uh, the pressures led to two distinct responses. Southern school systems desegregated massively. Northern systems remain as segregated today as they were in the 1960s. Neither response, however, is associated with a, a marked compromise of school performance. Again, holding these other factors constant. Uh, in fact, the southern systems, which desegregated most completely, tend to have done better than, uh, than uh, the average system in the country, both in terms of black uh, student achievement and white student achievement in terms of resisting the, uh, the uh, forces of, de of declining performance. 
So I think one, on the basis of the facts, can sort of uh, uh, rule out the pressure for desegregation as an important uh, contributing cause. Finally, I come to a, uh, a more subtle change in the political environment of schools, uh, uh, one which I'm going to deal with at, a at some length uh, because it has not received uh, much, if any, attention to my knowledge, but which, uh, at least in, in my research, I find to have had a very profound impact on school performance. And this has to do with the role of business. Today, business groups are at the forefront uh, in pressing for education reform. And there's a, for obviously good reason why business uh, uh, has, uh, has put this problem on the front burner of its concerns. Business bears a direct and substantial cost from this decline in the performance of public schools. They bear a cost in terms of decreased productivity that accompanies a, a, a less well-educated uh, workforce, and they bear the cost, in many cases, of providing remedial education in-house. Perhaps a sad commentary on the state of the schools that a lot of, uh, a lot of basic literacy and numeracy education goes on inside businesses today rather than inside the schools. Uh, at the same time, uh, their demand uh, uh, for educated labor has grown over time as the role of traditional blue-collar jobs has declined. It's of, it's of more than passing interest to note that this second part of the story, this massive push toward employing more educated workers occurred precisely when public education performance was deteriorating. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.